One woman, one horse, one goal. 48 states for domestic violence awareness. Hello and welcome to Have Horse Will Travel, the official podcast for the Centaur Ride. I'm Meredith Cherry and this is my co-host Apollo. Today I'm going to talk all about our life before the ride, both myself and Apollo's life before we set out on this crazy adventure. People have asked me what kind of person it takes to do this kind of thing, and also what kind of horse is able to travel all over and go through so many different experiences. What is his background and what prepared him for this ride? Well, I'm not going to so much talk about training that prepared him, but I will talk about my childhood and younger life uh, as I got horse experience and got ready to become a horse traveler, and also where Apollo came from and what his experiences were like, as far as I am aware, for before I bought him, and a little bit about our life together before hitting the road. For myself, I have always been horse crazy. Since the time I can remember, I have always been a completely horse crazy girl. I had everything horses, not real horses, but everything horses for toys. I was always pretending I was a horse. I had my little ponies. I had a couple of briar horses, although those were treasures and I did not play with them. I just admired them. And I had grand champion brand horses. Those were my favorite. And anything that had to do with horses, I was interested. When I was in junior high, I started subscribing to Horse Illustrated, the magazine, and learned everything I could about horses. Up to that point, I'd been mostly reading horse fiction for younger readers. was particularly fond of Misty of Shinkadigue and also anything else by Marguerite Henry. Uh, I think I read everything that Henry wrote, or at least anything that I could find that she wrote, including some pretty obscure stuff, like Misty's Twilight. Have you even heard of that one? It was definitely not one of the more popular Misty series, but I owned it, I read it. I grew up in the city, and definitely not a horsey area. The only barn for miles and miles and miles and miles was actually not too far away from me, although I didn't learn that until later on. As far as I knew, there were no horses within a several hour drive from where I lived, except for a racetrack, but that was a whole nother world to me. I just wanted to be able to go to a barn, pet a horse, ride a horse, but That was not something that was an opportunity for me when I was a kid, except for just following seventh grade, I went to Girl Scout camp for the summer for a week and went to horse camp. So that was my first real horse experience other than begging and pleading anytime we'd go camping on a family camp out to go on trail rides. Apart from nose to tail trail rides, I didn't have any real horse experience to speak of until I turned 16. I did have a friend 
well, I still have a friend named Laura who had a horse, Bruce, who was an off-the-track quarter horse. And I would sometimes get to go visit her. She lived kind of far away, so we didn't get to visit each other very often. Actually, we met at horse camp. At 16, my parents had decided that I probably wasn't going to grow out of the horse thing. They were pretty sure it was just a phase that little girls went through and that sooner or later I was going to outgrew it. Well, I fooled them all and I never outgrew it. And so they decided if I was old enough to drive, I was probably too old to outgrow the horse thing. So when I turned 16, my parents got me the best present ever, not a pony. That might have been the best present ever, but they did get me weekly riding lessons at the local stable that I had no idea even existed. For being a horse crazy kid, you might have thought I'd have known that there were horses there, but I didn't. I started taking weekly lessons, starting with Western, and I took those from the age of 16 through 18, so about two years, and learned all the very basic equestrian stuff. Learned how to saddle, learned how to ride walk, trot, canter, learned to ride bareback, and I thought I was pretty hot stuff by the end of two years. I could do an obstacle course, I could canter both leads, I was so experienced. At that point, it was time to look at where I was going to go to college and what I was going to study. And so I decided that I would go to Colorado State University. I moved to Colorado in 2001 to begin my Bachelor of Science in Equine Science. It quickly became apparent to me that I was very far behind in my practical hands-on experience with horses. But I did as much as I could to make up for it as quickly as I could. The courses themselves were very interesting. There was everything from barn management to nutrition. There were classes on equine reproduction of every aspect to do with equine reproduction. And that ended up actually being my concentration that I chose later on. I ended up doing an internship at a breeding barn that was really, really interesting. I also got college credit for riding lessons. So I took Intermediate Western and Beginning English. That was my introduction to English writing. I also took as an extracurricular an introduction to the sport of polo. There was a polo team that I wasn't sure that I would enjoy polo. I'd never had any opportunity to even watch a polo match, but what the heck, I'd learn about it and maybe I could join. And so I went to their introduction practices and lessons and took a little bit of polo lessons and quickly decided that was not for me. I did not have nearly enough riding experience or confidence in the saddle for that matter to consider playing polo. I also took a class in packing and outfitting, which turned out to be a very useful sort of class when you're a horse traveler. Although, of course, way back then, I had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing now. And there were a multitude of other classes and extracurriculars. I volunteered at the University Vet Hospital for several years. 
I particularly liked volunteering in the necropsy lab, which a necropsy is an autopsy for animals. I was just fascinated by the anatomy and the the mystery of opening those animals up and seeing what was wrong with them that they ended up in the necropsy lab. That's kind of a weird thing that you probably didn't know about me. I also joined the Collegiate Horsemen's Association and did all sorts of interesting things through them, including becoming acquainted with a shire breeding farm that was just outside of town. And I took driving lessons with shires for not very long, enough to kind of get the basics I could harness and drive a very experienced shire at a walk and trot. Not nearly experienced enough to deal with their younger horses, which I did try once with their supervision, of course, and I thought my arms were going to get yanked off. So that was fun and interesting, but not something I thought that maybe I would want to pursue. Anyway, in summary, the equine science program was very well-rounded. There was a lot to learn about all sorts of aspects of the equine industry and, of course, about the science of horses. And I decided that vet school was not for me. But I wasn't sure what was for me. I was really interested in horse breeding, but various factors interfered with me really pursuing that. Also, while I was at university, I met the man who would become my husband and who would become my abuser. And that definitely influenced the path of my life obviously. He had a lot to say about what I should and shouldn't do with my career. He was very persuasive. He could come up with all sorts of very good logical reasons to not do anything that I thought I wanted to do for a career. And if I didn't agree with him, then he would switch to other tactics, including lots of guilt-tripping me about my choices that I wasn't putting his interests at heart and and shouldn't we make this decision together if we were going to get married and live happily ever after and so on and so forth. So long story short, after I graduated, I gave up horses. That was something I would regret for nine years. And nine years is how long it took me from the time that I graduated until I left him. During those years... I didn't realize at first that I had given up horses. It was more like I'd put it on hold, that there were other things I needed to do with my life before I really pursued horses as a career. And it was presented to me as kind of a carrot on a stick, that together we would build a business. His degree was in agriculture, although he never actually got his degree. But the classes he had taken were in agriculture also, but in the farming side. And so together we would build this farm and we would live this dream on a farm wherein I would have a horse business and he would have a veggie business, but they would somehow work together. And it was very complicated and convoluted and The way to achieve that, according to him, was to start with the veggie business for all sorts of logical reasons, of course, like it requires less capital and less land, which is certainly true. 
And eventually we would have enough capital to then invest in my horse business. Well, of course, that was part of the tactics of the abuse and the manipulation was to have this dream that was going to remain just a dream. And so I did not do anything with horses for nine years. I am excited to welcome our special guest, Nicole Ruslang from South Bend, Indiana, who is here to share with us a very important message about teen dating violence, which is an aspect of domestic violence that is unfortunately too often neglected in the conversation. Well, welcome, Nicole. Why don't you go ahead and start off by uh, introducing yourself and telling me a little about Brianna and what you do now. I'm Nicole Ruschlang. My stepdaughter, Brianna Ruschlang, was murdered a year ago in December 2018 by a classmate. A lot of times people don't associate it with domestic violence because when they think of domestic violence, they think of it as a partner, a lover, a husband, a boyfriend. This was not any of the above. This was just a classmate that assaulted her and then she became pregnant of the result and then he was angry that she did not abort the baby and murdered her. So I'm here to speak out about teen domestic violence. I have a page on Facebook about it. Um, I speak about it because it's not a thing that you hear about when you talk about teens and dating. I mean, you mostly hear about uh Teens may be getting bullied by a classmate or a partner or a boyfriend, but nothing like a domestic type situation. So I just basically like to educate people about it, speak about it on Facebook because it's, you know, it's an open, free social media platform that anyone can read and anyone can learn about it. I found Brianna's story very moving when you first told me about her. I had been speaking with domestic violence survivors and victims all over the country for several years before we first spoke. And I hadn't really heard much about teen dating violence either, which after speaking to you, it kind of was surprising to my own self that I hadn't really talked about it or heard about it when obviously the problem doesn't start when someone turns 18. It's not like some magic switch flips on that suddenly people can be victims. What would you recommend for this conversation to get out there more? What can parents do when they're talking to their teens who are getting ready to be of dating age? Or what would you like teens to know? What all can we share here on this podcast? Let me first start out with the teens. Teens kind of have this superhero mentality, like nothing's going to happen to them. For Brianna, she was a very sweet, young person, and she never thought anyone would do anything wrong to her. A lot of teens have that same mindset, especially if it's a classmate. In her situation, it was a small community, and everyone knew everyone. So she knew this kid from when they were, like, in grade school. So, you know, a lot of times people think, well, I know this person. There's no way they could do do anything to me. So I guess my message out there is it does not matter if you knew them when they were two or when they, when you just if you just met them when they were 18. They could be just as violent to you as a stranger next door to you. Kind of think, think about for teens, they don't, like, look at signs. They don't look at 
uh, what what is this person doing that they could maybe later on hurt me in some way, shape, or form. I would say for teens to know that they can find someone that they can speak to, whether it be a best friend or friend's parents or, or their parents or or school counselors, know that if they have any questions or they're unsure to speak out. You know, there's always little red flags. They kind of add up as you go. Even as a teen, they kind of add up. And I think that for this day and age, a lot of things is texting, 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 or social media. So teens see things a lot, especially with bullying, on Facebook. So like a kid will call another kid a name or things like that. That's that's a red flag. So keep an eye out for that. I would also say be on the lookout for what message you're putting out there. You know, yes, it's a, you're free to put on any clothing you want or talk however you want, but you have to always think about how a young person, another young person is going to perceive that. So whether it be a male and female or female to female or male to male, they're going to be enticed by what you're saying or doing. So think about that. You know, teens are all about looking cute, being in fashion, um, being popular. So they're not at all thinking that whatever they're doing or saying is going to make someone be sexualized by it or notice them in a negative way. They're just thinking, I'm just looking cool over here. So think about those things. As a parent, I know for parents... It's hard with teens. They, you know, they can be in their own little box and you can't really communicate with them and what's going on. But I would say stay in contact with the school. The school your kid is in that school longer than they're with you during the week. So they might know some things that you don't know. Be in contact with your child's best friend. They obviously will know things that you don't know. That best friend they're going to confide in, they're going to tell them things that you might never know. Also, find out what social media platforms they're on, what apps they have on their phones, because those are the biggest billboards for inappropriate conversations that happen between teens and their peers. So it's not just Facebook and Twitter. There's tons of other apps out there. I have some of them on my Facebook page that the teens can get on or kids can get on. And they're supposed to be for kids, but there are ways that they can communicate with people that the parents don't even know. So find out about that. Your local police station, your local justice center or YWCA, those tend to have information about apps that teens are getting into where they're communicating with others. I actually did a talk with some youth at an organization called Youth Service Bureau here in town, and it's an organization that helps teens who are at risk. There are, a lot of them are homeless. A lot of them are runaways. So I did a talk about domestic violence to them, and one thing that I noticed that helped with them was getting their feedback. So I wasn't just there talking at them, showing a slideshow with slides and stats and preaching to to them about um, what not to wear because they would have just rolled their eyes at me. I let Mm -hmm. them speak to me. So I would tell them about statistics, but then I would hear what they had to say back. So... When I was talking about the red flags, such as be careful uh, if you're with your significant other and, you know, one minute they're fine, you're having a good time, the next minute your phone starts going off and they grab your phone asking you, who's that, who's that? 
that's a red flag. No one, it's none of anybody's business who's on your phone. So when I made that comment, I had a teenage girl say, oh my gosh, that happened to me. And I didn't even know that that could be a sign. And I'm like, yes, that could be a sign because now he or she is in your business. So now he or she could threaten you because they don't like who's on the other side of that phone texting you or calling you. And that's not appropriate for them to ask you who is on the phone. And that leads to one thing after another. And then the same as, you know, when you're talking to them about clothing, I think I had a slide on clothing. It was a short slide, but they kind of laughed at it. But it was mainly like a magazine type clipping of I had like appropriate clothes versus inappropriate clothes. And I just got their feedback. What do you think is appropriate? It was just interesting just to hear them talk. I mean, some did not think there's anything wrong with showing your belly button. Some didn't think there's anything wrong with showing your shoulder. The whole point was teenagers perceive things differently than an adult does. So what mm-hmm. I had them say was, what do you think is inappropriate? And their and their responses were so interesting because they just thought, I can wear whatever I want. What is it anyone's business? Which is true. You should be able to wear whatever you want. But just so you know, when you are wearing those clothing, you are drawing attention to yourself. And and a lot of times it's, in, it's negative attention. So we had that dialogue back and forth of even what was negative attention. What does that even mean? Because they, you know, of course they see it on TV or they see it in magazines or they see it on Facebook, you know, the style that they're looking at. So we just talked about what is exactly is negative attention and what's so wrong with it. And I said, you know, when they're looking at your belly button, this is what they're thinking. They're thinking I can mm-hmm. put my tongue there. I can put my mouth there. And so once you get graphic with it, of course you get giggles. Of course you get uncomfortable squirming in a chair but then I had that one team was like you're right they are doing this they are going to do that that is correct so just get that dialogue back and forth because you can't just talk at someone they're not going to hear you at all Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so important to get the message about teen dating violence and domestic violence as a whole out to teenagers because that's really when the foundation for their relationship really starts to build. If we can teach them younger what to do, what to watch out for. So I definitely commend you for what you're doing, taking an indescribable heartbreak into something positive for other people. What can our listeners do to help with uh, Brianna Voice Against Domestic Violence? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and I have Facebook. Come to my page. Come to my Facebook page. Come to my Twitter page. Come to my Instagram page. I want feedback. I want comments. I want to hear your experiences. And when I get feedback from other people, whether it be, I'm sorry for what you're going through, or I get feedback just asking questions about what happened or or what is domestic violence, any type of feedback is great. So just keep doing that. Keep giving me your questions. Keep giving me your comments. Just just talk to me. I wish I'd had someone like Nicole to tell me about teen dating violence and the red flags to watch out for for an abusive relationship, but I didn't. So it took me a long time to get out. But when I did, I decided it was time to actually live my dream. The main one, of course, was horses. 
but also I had always loved traveling. I had traveled often as a child and a teenager with my family. And in university, I had studied abroad in France and actually got a minor in French. So those were the two things that I had given up that I wanted to get back in my life, horses and travel. And so one day while I was talking with my therapist, she asked me, what did I want to do now? We could talk about the past at length, but really, what did I want to do with my life now? And I said, I missed horses and I missed traveling. And so that was the spark of the idea. And I started really thinking about that. I thought, man, that would be fun to ride a horse everywhere. When I was little, like elementary school age, I would ride my bicycle to school and to my friend's house and all over the neighborhood. And I always imagined that my bicycle was a horse. As I bicycled around, I would talk to it like it was a horse. and I'd cluck to it and it was probably named Misty. And so I always imagined, what if I could ride my horse to school? That would be awesome. And so then I really started thinking, could I ride a horse everywhere? How would that even work? Where would I go? Are there trails? Or would I have to be on the roads? And where would I sleep? And has anyone ever done this before? And so as I really started thinking about it and coming up with all these good, important questions, then I started researching. And then I found out people have done this. Not the route that I'm doing, not precisely how I'm doing it, but they've done journeys on horseback. Of course, before cars, everyone journeyed on horseback, but that was a different sort of deal. But even in modern recent years, last year, this year, last decade, every decade, really, people have jumped on their horse and ridden off into the sunset to wherever it is they wanted to go. And if they could do it, why the heck couldn't I do it? I had a degree in equine science, after all, for goodness sakes. And so I started planning. And the first step was to find a horse. So I started looking on Craigslist, which this was in 2014. And I will be the first one to admit that I did everything wrong when it came to buying my very first horse. Here's what I did that I shouldn't have done. I did not get connected with a trainer who could help me shop for one that was the appropriate level of training and personality and whatnot for me. Keeping in mind, I hadn't ridden a horse in nine years. And even when I was riding, you could call me an intermediate rider, but I was never a confident rider. I knew theoretically what I was doing. I got college credit for a horse training class, but practically speaking, I hadn't had enough experience for it really to solidify and really be a confident, experienced rider. The next thing I did that was not the way that you should go about buying your first horse is that I did not shop around for very long. I did spend maybe a month on Craigslist perusing ads every day. I had a very specific list of what I was looking for in a horse most of which turned out to be good ideas. 
particularly, I was looking for things that would be important for a horse that would be traveling the distance that I wanted to travel. I had to be young enough that by the time I was ready to go in a few years and then took four-ish years to do the ride that the horse wouldn't be too old after all of that time to actually complete the journey. Couldn't have any pre-existing known injuries or health issues that would be a problem when traveling and had to be big enough to carry me and my packs I don't have a lot of stuff in my packs, but I couldn't have an Arabian. It just wouldn't have been able to hold enough between me and my bags. Let me say, by the way, I love Arabians, and I would have loved to get an Arabian, but that would not have suited my purposes. And there were several other things on my list of factors that I was looking at. And so I narrowed down the Craigslist ads. All of them was like, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. I knew that I was not an expert horse person. And so the horse had to have some training, didn't have to be well-trained. I figured I could at least improve on the training that it had, but it had to at least be started. And so any horses that had never been ridden before were out, any that had leg problems were out, any that were over the age of seven or eight were out. And also, I had a very limited budget to work with, and so any of them that were over my budget were out. And so the next thing that I did wrong was that I fell in love with the first horse that I went to actually see, and I bought pretty. So I guess that's two things. Now, this is starting to sound like I made a bad decision about Apollo. And I didn't make a bad decision about Apollo per se. He's turned out to be an excellent choice for the road. But I think part of that has to do with that I did have good criteria for what I was looking for, especially in terms of physical capabilities and also personality or horsonality, that he was friendly. That was the big thing that I really liked about him. Well, I also liked that he was pretty. Because you'll have to admit, if you haven't seen pictures of him, go on my website, my Facebook page. He is just pretty. And so, of course, that was a factor in my decision, which I'm only a little ashamed to admit. But he was also super friendly. He just wanted to be right there socializing with me and with his owner immediately upon walking into the pen. And I really liked that because with the traveling we'd be doing, he needed to be a real people horse. He needed to be willing to bond with me. That was key. But also he needed to be friendly for all the people we'd meet who would want to pet him. And so that ended up being a really good thing that I was looking for. So I bought the first horse that I saw and I bought a pretty horse. Those are both very beginner horse shopper sorts of mistakes, but it worked out for the best. So Apollo, when I bought him, he was five years old and he was a beautiful Palomino. Well, he still is a beautiful Palomino. And it was winter, so he had his lighter Palomino color. And when his summer color came in, I was just blown away by how much even more gorgeous my horse was. He's a Mustang Peruvian Paso cross. So his background is that he was born in Nevada on a Peruvian Paso ranch. 
The ranch owners owned Peruvian Pasos, and I'm not entirely clear if they were a breeding farm or if they just owned several mares. But in any case, the ranch was located in the same area where there was a band of wild mustangs running around on BLM land, and one of these mustangs was a big gray stallion. And one day, he took a fancy to these little Peruvian Paso mares and jumped the fence or broke down the fence or anyway, got on the mare's side of the fence. And 11 months later, Apollo was born. 11 months, by the way, is the gestation period for horses. He was a happy accident, although I don't think that the ranch owner thought that he was a happy accident. He was simply an accident. So they sold him pretty young. I'm not sure exactly how young, but more or less a yearling from what I was told by the person who bought him. She lived near where I live, and so she was his second owner, if you count where he was born being the first owner, which is technically true. So the first person to buy him, or his second owner, brought him to Northern California, Nevada County, which is my county. And she started him with his basic groundwork training. She did some desensitization, she had him gelded, and found him to be a very headstrong, pushy kind of horse. And so she ended up selling him a couple years later, so when he was around three, she sold him to his third owner, who was a high school student. And so his third owner got him started under saddle, She hired a trainer with one of those 30-day training programs to get him started. But she was a busy high school student and was about to go to college. And she took him to board near her college briefly, but that didn't really work out. So she brought him back to her parents' house where he sat. Every once in a while, her dad would take him out on a little trail ride, but her dad didn't really know how to ride a young green horse and fell off at least once. So Apollo just sat. He didn't have any other horses nearby on that property, and he was he's a very social horse, and he wanted company, and he wanted someone to love him. And his owner knew this was the case, And being responsible, at the age of five, about two years after she bought him, she sold him to me. So I became his fourth owner in five years. That's a lot of owners for a horse to have by the time they're five years old. And that probably should have been a red flag, but I'm not really very good at seeing red flags, as we know from my history. And so I bought him. He turned out to be very friendly, but also, as his second owner later told me when I met her after I had bought Apollo, that he was very pushy, very mouthy. He would bite, but he wasn't mean. He just thought that was how you communicated with people, was to bite them. So he was a bit of a challenge for me as a kind of intermediate horse person. I spent the next three years working with him to get him ready to be ridden on the roads and to get myself ready to ride him on the roads. And that is a topic that I will talk in depth about in a future episode. So keep listening. 
To celebrate our launch, I am doing a giveaway. Each of the first three episodes that have launched today, March 15th, have a question for you, the listener. And if you answer all three questions, there's not a right or wrong answer, but you just have to answer all three questions. You will be entered to win a free signed copy of my newest short story collection of Have Horse Will Travel, which has stories from the previous year of my ride. So stories from 2019. So this episode's question is about your dreams as a child. When I was little, I dreamed of becoming a veterinarian and working with horses as a vet. But now I'm a horse traveler instead. What was your dream job as a child? And did you eventually become that? Or did you become something else? So thanks for listening. Please check my website, www.centarride.org, for the show notes and other information about the ride. And be sure to check out next week's episode, which will be those details that I just promised about what all that I did during the three years that I prepared to start the ride. I'll be talking about training, I'll be talking about research and planning, and all sorts of things that I bet you wouldn't even think about that would be involved with preparing for a ride of this nature.